Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. This Christmas season, we invite you to look deeper into the incredible covenants God made with His people in Scripture. Tune into our current series, Gift Grabbed, From Longing to Lavish, to discover God's unwavering promises to meet the ultimate longings of our heart and ultimately renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the gospel. If you don't know who I am, I'm Jim. I'm the campus pastor here. It's great to have you with us. And I love hearing stories of life change uh, like that. And, and part of uh, Woodside's commitment is not just to here, Metro Detroit, where we have 14 campuses, but it's to seeing people of all nations everywhere come to know Christ and making disciples around the world. And like Pastor Chris said, uh, that's why we're, we're uh, dedicating one-third of our initiative at Christmas time, $1.5 million, towards uh, this new initiative and our global partners uh, to be able to see other people around the world. As much as, you know, we've been going through stuff here in the States, uh, through all that's been happening with the coronavirus and all the stuff that comes with that, um, partners all over the world have been hit really hard as well. Uh, one of my good friends is going to India, and he hasn't been able to go there because of how bad it's just been there and all of the stuff that's happening all over the world. I mean, as much as we've been going through, our partners around the world have been greatly impacted and unable to continue doing ministry in places that God has called them to. And so we want to be uh, their support in these seasons and in these times. And so, uh, again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for your generosity. Thank you for believing in the vision that God has given our church. For those of you who call this place home, I told you last week, uh, our commitment here at our campus, or our goal, I should say, at our campus, is to make up our, our, the rest of our budget for the year and then give as much as we can towards the end of vi uh, vision to be able to help more, and pe more people come to know Jesus. And, uh, man, I am so glad to be able to see what God's doing, and I look forward to what God's going to be doing in uh, the future with all that God has placed in our heart here and around the world. It's going to be fun to watch. So if you would, uh, turn to uh, 2 Samuel this morning. 2 Samuel 7, one of my favorite characters in the Bible we're going to be looking at today. If you haven't been with us, if you're joining us online or joining us in the room, um, man, we have been going through a series on the covenants uh, places in time where God made a commitment, a covenant uh, with individuals or people groups. And we've looked at the Noahic covenant with Noah and the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham. And then the, the Mosaic covenant last week with the people of Israel and, and Moses. And today we're going to be fast forwarding to the Davidic covenant, which is the covenant that God made with David. And as I was looking at this, I was preparing, I'm, I'm thinking about David and his life and with the text that we're, we're looking at. It's interesting, it reminded me of a Christmas story uh, a number of years ago with one of my kids. All of my analogies, my stories come out of my children because uh, they're just easy, right? Uh, one day my, my kids are going to hate me for that, and even now I have to stop using names associated with it because they understand what's happening. Uh, but it reminded me a couple of years ago, I don't know about you, but and one of the best things that all of us love about Christmas is giving and receiving gifts. It's fun. We can acknowledge that, right? And as Christians, we can still have fun and acknowledge that there's something awesome about that. And so we love giving and receiving gifts. And I don't know about you, have you ever had a moment where you thought your instincts and your intuitions were perfect and you knew exactly what that person wanted for Christmas only to find out you were completely wrong? You were completely off. Your instincts and your intuitions were wrong. Like you thought, like, man, they're going to love this gift. It's going to be awesome. And you watched them open it. This happened to us a couple years ago. I won't name which child. 
But I remember her sitting there. I had the video of it, and I so wanted to show you the video of it, of uh, this meltdown, but I can't find it uh, for some reason. I think that's God's providence, because later on in life, she would definitely be very upset at me for showing the video in church. But um, I remember her opening the gift, and as she was opening, we're like, she's going to love it. And literally, uh, just we heard this, this screech, this howl, this whelping, this yelling that literally said, that's not what I wanted. It was fantastic. I mean, in those moments, I don't get upset. I just enjoy the moment and try to video as fast as possible so that I can show this at their high school graduation or whatever else in the future. But, I mean, I just remember being like, how? How did this happen? How did we not know what one of our kids wanted for Christmas? How did we get it so wrong? Like, how are we so off base? We didn't know our own children. All of our instincts, all of our intuitions were completely wrong. We got it dead wrong. Now, it, it all worked out because I think we're all, she's still one of my children and I'm her dad and everything's good. And God gives me these little nuggets of truth for illustrations. I know it. But this is exactly, uh, when you look at this story of David, exactly what happens with David and God. I mean, David thought he knew exactly what God needed. He thought he knew exactly and completely what God needed in this moment, but he was wrong, much like we are many times. So if you look with me in, in 2 Samuel um, we're looking at the Davidic covenant. Now, the Davidic covenant is just this, that God made a covenant with David that the Messiah king would come through his lineage, David's lineage, through the chi tribe of Judah, and, and would establish the kingdom, the kingdom of God that would last forever. And it was coming through David. It was promised to David. But it, it's a unique covenant in that uh, many of the other covenants we've looked at, Abrahamic, the Mosaic Covenant, kind of have deep connection with this covenant, and actually they kind of find their blessing and their promise through these, that they're, they're literalized, and some of it comes to fruition through David. Say it this way, literally, the promise of Abraham, of universal blessing, would be realized through the son of David. So you see, these covenants are kind of compounding on one another. So what God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole world through you, is now partially being realized through David and will be fully realized through David's ultimate son, Jesus. A son of David will be the means by which the promises of land and offspring promised to Moses and worldwide blessing through Abraham would actually be realized down the road. And so when we look at this covenant, this story in 2 Samuel, and we see this amazing truth that comes to light. And this is what we're going to see. This is what I want you to see the whole text is that you can never serve God better than God serves you. You can never serve God better than God serves you. So let's look at just the first seven verses together and see how uh, maybe where uh, David went wrong. Let's read it together. Now, uh, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies... The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day that I uh, brought up the people out of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. 
In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So here, the first thing we see is that God doesn't need your work and my work for his glory. We see here in the text that David literally got it completely wrong. He had one idea of what God needed, and God kind of had a different idea and says, no, uh, that's not what I'm thinking. You see, David was living comfortably in his house of cedar. I'm sure it was immaculate and beautiful, and he was experiencing rest from his enemies. Literally, he's like, man, I'm comparing my dwelling place that's this unbelievable, beautiful place, and God, because the Ark of the Covenant was the presence of God, is just dwelling in this tent. Like, why should God be in a tent, and I, as the king, have this amazing palace? So Nathan the prophet, not speaking on behalf of God, just out of his own wisdom, says, man, God is with you. Go and do what's in your heart. Sounds like a good idea. I mean, it makes sense to me, right? I mean, how many of you would be living in a palace and God's presence in like a little tent? You're like, something's off here. This ain't right. So David's intuitions and his instincts were like, man, I should build God a house. But God had a different perspective. Same night, God says, Nathan, go and tell your servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? It's like a rhetorical question, almost like a backhanded rhetorical question. Do I need you to build a house for me? And then he kind of answers the question, no, by saying, man, just a little history or lesson. Do you remember how I have, for the last 300 years since the Exodus, been traveling with my people in a tent, and I have been just fine. And all of the judges I had, I didn't say one thing to them while they had the capability. Why don't you build a house for me? It's almost as if God's kind of like saying, like, man, I know you had maybe good intention, but I want to ask you a question here. I'm the one who pulled you out of Egypt. I did all this stuff. Do you think I need you to build me a house? It's interesting. Now, I've been married for almost 14 years this summer, and I've learned a couple of things through marriage, a few things, and mostly learning them out of my own mistakes, which is always fun, right? And so when I first got married, um, man, I thought my wife wanted gifts. Like, I would buy my wife gifts and get her gifts, and it would be awesome, and uh, now every woman loves gifts. I'll just say, no matter what their love language is, they love gifts. So it wasn't that Sarah didn't love gifts, but I thought, like, man, I'd just give her a gift, and everything would be great and perfect and hunky-dory. And, men, that's just not the, that's not the case. Um, just as free. Uh, they also need other things like time, right? And so as I learned, I was super wrong. I was really wrong. All my instincts and intuitions were like, man, I'll give her this amazing gift and blah, blah, blah. I won't write anything on a card. I'll just give her a gift. And it was never right. Learning over years is that while my wife still loved gifts, she wanted quality time with me. That's where women say, amen, right? So all my instincts and intuitions were like, man, I'll just get her this beautiful thing, or I'll get her flowers, and it'll be all good. But at the end of the day, she loved the gifts, but also she wanted what her heart's desire was, is to spend time with me, quality time, because it was one of her love languages. And sing, when you look at the story, it seemed as though, man, uh, David had a good idea, like, I'm in, a, I'm in a big house, God's in a tent, so, man, I'm going to build God a house, it'll be great, it'll be wonderful. All of his instincts and intuitions felt like, man, this is what God is calling me to, but he was wrong. It was really foolish, actually, of him to think 
that God, and presume, presume on God, that man, after God brought them out, did all this miraculous, amazing stuff, that God now needed him to rescue him from his humble beginnings in a tent because David could do it. And like David, I don't know about you, oftentimes myself included, we devise projects and plans based on our own instincts and intuitions, thinking, man, this is what God wants me to do with my life, and this is what God, this is what I should do for God, and God needs me to do this, and man, I should do this or that, but can I tell you, the application for us here is super thick, that we need to understand that God doesn't need our work for his glory. We are to work and glorify God, but all of what I am supposed to do is to come out of a humble obedience of my heart that lines up with the word of God. That as I follow God in obedience from the word of God, I will be directly in line with the word of God, right? So I'm not going based on my instincts or my intuitions. I'm going based on what God has called me to do. Because, man, I love, I just recently heard a pastor say, man, I know what God has for your life. I know that God is calling you to love your neighbor as yourself. I know what God has for your life. I know God is calling you every single day to wake up, get in the word of God, and see how God is calling you that day to be his hands and feet. Man, I know what God is calling for you. He's calling you to live selfless lives for your spouse. I know what God is calling you to. He's calling you to make disciples of your children. And I know what God is calling you to. He's calling you to make disciples of all nations. When's the last time you've made a disciple? Man, I know what God is calling you to. I know what the will of the Lord is for your life. But we have a whole generation of Christians that are living based on their instincts and intuitions as to what God is having for them every single day. Void, many times, of the scriptures that are called to lead and guide us so that I'm not in a predicament like David saying, man, I think that God wants me to do this. Rather, I know God is calling me to lead in this way because it grounded, it's grounded in the word of God. It's grounded in what I know God is calling me to do every single day. Well, when you look on, the second thing we see in verses 8 through 11 is God works to bring us to rest like he does with David. Look with me in verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. Now, this is significant. When you see these things in the Bible, circle them and see why they're there. Because before he said the Lord, now he's saying the Lord of hosts. So there's something changing here. I, look, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over the people of Israel. So I took you from the pasture, or the, the pasture to being a prince now. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all of your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones on the earth. And I will appoint a place for you or for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall not afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all of your enemies. We see that God works to bring us to rest. Now, this is part two of God's addressing uh, David through the prophet Nathan. Now, I said it's interesting that he says the Lord of hosts here. Now, since the first time it occurs in 1 Samuel 1, 3, it only occurs in moments of solemn importance, emphasizing God's sovereignty and power. 
Now, that's super important because when you see that in the text, as I say, when, you, when he says the Lord, and the next time he says the Lord of hosts, it's significant because what God is about to tell David has everything to do with him being fully in control of David's life, sovereignly and powerfully in control of his life. That's why he says the Lord of hosts. And so the first thing he does, he looks in his past. He says, hey, man, do you remember when you were just a shepherd boy? You were just some little punk kid in the middle of a field with, with, with the sheep, and I'm the one who came and anointed you as the king. Do you remember how I took you from the pasture to now being a prince? Right? Do you remember this? Not only that, the rest that you're experiencing from all of your enemies, I'm the one who cut off all of your enemies and brought you to this amazing place. I'm the one who has had power of your life. The emphasis on I in verse 8 and verse 9 shows that the Lord of hosts, who's done all of these things. Second, he looks on to the future. So he looks back, he's like, hey, do you remember you're in the field and how far I brought you and I've been with you the whole time? And the second, look in the future. God promises to give David a name and a place and peace and rest. You see, David, I think maybe, I think was a little mistaken I think that he, all the things that God had already promised to them as the people of God, he thought were already happening. Do you notice at the beginning of the passage, it says that they were experiencing rest from all of their enemies, and David just kind of like sitting back and chilling and relaxing. And I think as though David might have thought, man, God's promises have been fulfilled. I'm experiencing all of the joys of the promise. But God basically said, hey, look what I did in the past. Now, I'm going to bring you to this place of peace and rest. So he's signaling it's not yet done. There is more still to come. God declares here that he's the one who's done the work. He's the one that's done the work from the past. He's the one that's going to do the work in the, in, the in the front, in the future. This is the story of God. This is something I want you to remember. God works for us, and we rest in him. It's always been like that, and it will always be like that from the very beginning, from now till David to us. God works, and we rest in him. We rest in the work that he has done on our behalf. And he's showing David this. Like, man, I think it's a great idea what you're wanting to do, but I just want to remind you, I'm the one who brought you to this place. I'm the one who brought you to this, to this place. And I'm going to bring you into the future. And I'm the one who works. And I want you to sit down and rest in what I have done. It's amazing. Reminding David of this beautiful thing, that God is the one who brought him. Now, the, the, the amazing factor for us is that this is exactly what God does for us. This is the beauty of the covenant of David, the Davidic covenant where God says to David and we experience the true blessings of this being experiencing this exact same thing that the promise of Jesus that through David's line, a Messiah would come and he would rule forever and ever. And through this, what Jesus has done on our behalf, he takes us, right? If you know Jesus today, if you're watching online, he takes us from a terrible past, amen? He takes us from a place where Ephesians says we are dead and our trespasses and sins. There's nothing we can do about it. We are broken. We need it to be brought to life. And he takes us from a terrible past. He gives us a new name, a place to exist, and peace and rest from all of our enemies. God works to bring us to rest through Jesus Christ. That's what God has done on our, on our behalf. He's brought us to this place of having rest with him. And so I ask you this morning, no matter who you are in this room or who's watching online, have you experienced, have you experienced the peace and the rest that only comes through Jesus Christ? 
Because in a world where, man, I don't know, there's a ton of stuff going on. The guy that came through the lineage of David, and he came in Matthew 1, and Jesus was born on Christmas, and he became the true and right king. And one of his teachings, he actually says this in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I don't know who you are today. I know a bunch of you, but I don't know you at the state of your soul. Have you ever sat down in the peace and the rest that God has given you through Christ Jesus? Because not just enough to say, man, I, I mentally, yeah, I believe that. That's true, that, that Jesus did come. But have you sat down, placed your faith and trust in the rest, experienced the rest for your soul, that you're no longer striving to make God happy? Man, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that because it'll make God happy. One day I stand before him, he'll love me because I did all this stuff for him. No, he'll only love you because you are in Christ. We have to sit down in that reality, placing our faith and trust in it. And men, believer here today, I just want to declare to you that there's rest for you. Not only did God do the rest in the past, he, he did all of this work to bring you into a relationship with him of rest, but he's prepared a way in the future for you to have literally a Sabbath rest with him for all of eternity. And no matter what's going on in life right now, there's peace and rest for your soul because you are in Christ. There's no more striving that I have to impress God. There's no more striving. Yes, I work and I do because I love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, but there's a difference in my heart. I'm not impressing God. I'm not at church right now to make God happy. I'm at church because I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I want to be with the people of God to sing the praises of God and hear from the word of God. Big difference right? So lastly, let's look at the last uh, portion of our scripture. This is significant in that he says, moreover, the Lord declares to you. This keys something significant he's, he's about to say. Look in verse uh, 11b. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. This, this is interesting. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come by your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will bring, excuse me, and I will be to him a father, and he shall be a son. When he commits in, uh, inequity, iniquity, excuse me, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all the vision, Nathan spoke to David. So the last thing we hear, we, we see in this section is that God provides, now we'll see it happen, provides a forever king to serve us. In Jesus. Now, when you, when you look at it, you see here this original rhetorical question that was at the very beginning. Do you remember when, when God asked, would you build a house for me? With a question mark. It was almost like a rhetorical question like, uh, are you the one that's supposed to build a house for me? Now, the irony and the beauty of this text is that God in turn now says, I'm going to build you a house. Like, you wanted to build me a house. I'm about to build you a house. 
It's amazing. I love this in the, in the scriptures that there's, there's this like ebb and flow. It's not just boring, but God is actually turning David on his head and basically saying like, hey, you want it with all of your instincts and intuitions and sure it might have come out of a good place, but I want to remind you that I'm God and you don't need to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And it's a forever house, an everlasting house. So he says, man, Eventually, you're going to die. You're going to lay down like all of your fathers. And after that, your offspring's going to come. He's talking about Solomon. And this is the first time where David finally gets to find out, like, hey, you wanted to build me a house and a temple, but actually it's going to be your son, Solomon, who's actually going to build the temple for me. And David finally figures that out in this section of the text. But he says, man, in verse 13 and 16, that this kingdom is going to be a royal rule of David's offspring. It's going to be established forever. So he's, he's pointing to something that goes well beyond Solomon, well beyond David. That this is going to be established forever. He says it in both 13 and 16. That this points to something else, a forever king that's coming down the road. And this is an unconditional, conditional covenant. Do you understand what that means? It's unconditional, but it's conditional. Now, I know that doesn't make sense, but a lot of things in the scriptures seemingly don't make sense. He's one, but he's three. He's fully man, but yet he's fully God. God wrote the Bible, but also men wrote the Bible. So it's, it's one of those things. It's conditional, but it's unconditional. What it means is that the dynasty of David won't be removed ever. Like, it'll come through David. God will fully commit what he said he was going to do through David. But individual kings after David, that would transgress, or they would do wrong, they would not experience the blessing. And if they were so bad, God would remove them from their position if they stray from God's commands in the covenant. And it, wouldn't you know, that's exactly what happens. I mean, you read uh, about the kings in the Old Testament, and man, in, in Second Kings, you read about it, the kingdom was divided, and one was taken off by Assyria, and one was taken off to, by the Babylonians, all Listen to me on this, all by the hand of God ordained. That his own people would be taken into captivity because of their disobedience to what God had called them to do. God says, fine, and he removes them, showing this coming to fruition. And in all of this, you would think, man, there's got to be a loss of hope. Like, God made this promise to David, but how is it going to come true? How is it going to come full circle? And this is why the Old Testament is so key for us understanding all this stuff. We read these passages, we don't know where they came from. So you hear about prophets, minor prophets and uh, major prophets, telling about this hope, this yearning for the Messiah, one that we even read at Christmas time often in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of this government and his peace, there will be no end. And the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness, for this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is Isaiah writing, saying, man, this is a yearning. This is going to happen. And you fast forward, man, like what happened? You hear these people talking about, man, this is supposed to happen through David and the Messiah is supposed to come through the Davidic covenant and nothing's happening until Matthew 1, 1. Beautiful, 
In Matthew 1.1, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, signaling to all its readers, he's here. And throughout the rest of the New Testament, Jesus is identified as the son of God, identifying that he is the promised Messiah. Man, it's, it's amazing and profound when you look at the scriptures, how detailed and amazing they are. This son of David, Jesus, would, would come and build a house, but it's not a house like the temple in Jerusalem. No, it's going to be a church. Those who Jesus would gather to himself would become a spiritual house. And both elements of the Davidic covenant were fulfilled in Jesus. God promised, he fulfilled what he promised, and Jesus, as the true king, obeyed all of the covenant conditions, unlike every previous king, he fulfilled them perfectly. And so God, in a moment, provided a servant king for us. But again, this Jesus isn't like other kings, man. If you remember the story of Christmas, he didn't come with all the fanfare and parades. You'd think the king of the world, the king of the universe, would come down from the sky, and there'd be all kinds of crazy things happening to, to bring in the king that's been waited for for so long. But no, he was born in a lowly manger, running for his life with no great amount of people, a few shepherds who were probably the least of these in the community. And here Jesus was born, unlike a typical king, establishing a kingdom forever. He didn't come to be served, rather he came to serve his kingdom. He's a king that came to give his life in order to build an eternal house, the church that we get to be a part of. He's a king that came to serve us with his life. And this is Jesus at Christmas, coming, the rightful king, serving us by his righteous death. And there is nothing that you can do and I can do to put him in our debt. There's nothing we can do to make him love us more. He loved us already so much that he came on Christmas morning to give his life for us, to live the perfect life we couldn't so that we could have his life and we could have his death and we could be a part of his glorious eternal kingdom, his house forever. God has already provided a forever king to serve us. And that king is Jesus, the son of God, who came on Christmas morning. Man, receive him today if you haven't. Trust him because he's trustworthy and allow him to serve you today with his life. And be reminded of this at Christmas. Man, I hope through all of this, it gives you and stirs your affections for how profound and amazing the scriptures are and how they are intertwined and God is faithful. I hope it brings about in you a faithfulness that God is faithful. I mean, he's been showing himself faithful since thousands of years ago till now so he can be trusted in this season. And I hope it amplifies your view and perspective of Jesus that for all of these years, it's been pointing at Jesus and today still, we are still here to glorify King Jesus. So today, if you don't know him as your savior, please come forward afterwards. Pray with someone during the last song. I would love to have a conversation with you. If you're online, drop a comment. Send us a message. We'd love to chat with you about what it looks like to have a relationship with the king of the universe. 
Jesus Christ. And may this stir our affections as we enter into this week to celebrate his birth. That is about him, Jesus, King Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve us. And he did so with his life. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.